Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and every so often I like to get back in front of the microphone and do an interview about a book that comes across my desk that I find particularly interesting. In this case, we'll be talking about Paul Hollander's book, From Benito Mussolini to Hugo Chavez, Intellectuals and a Century of Political Hero Worship. When I saw this book, I knew that I wanted to talk to Paul because I had read his earlier book on a kind of similar topic called Political Pilgrims, Western Intellectuals in Search of the Good Society. It came out, I don't know, I think it came out in the 90s. I know it came out in the 90s. Paul, do you know when it came out? It came out, first edition was 81. 81, really, that early? I Polit- Political out. Pilgrims, 81. Yeah, yes. I didn't know it was that early. I must have read like yeah. the, it's been in multiple editions, it gets reprinted all the time. So it was a book that I had read and I very much admired. And then when I found that Paul had returned to the topic um, or a similar topic, I guess I would say I was very eager to read the book and to talk to him. So the first thing I want to say is, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, as, as you already know, I, my name is Paul Hollander. I, I was born in Budapest, Hungary, a long time ago, and spent, spent my first 24 years in Hungary. And then I had all my I did high school in Hungary, gymnasium, academic high school, and then I went to the London School of Economics for my BA and Princeton for my PhD. And I should add that I escaped from Hungary following the defeat of the 1956 revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've discussed this before, but you're part of a very interesting cohort of people that fled when the Soviets invaded. So, Um, Could I ask you? Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, could I ask you? I don't think I've mentioned this to you before. Um, for those of you who don't know, Paul and I have met in person. And, um, how, how did that experience affect your work? You mean growing up, growing up in Hungary? Well, not just that, yes. leaving after 1956. Yes, well, of course, it has affected my work quite profoundly. And uh, I, I used to say, I didn't mention earlier that between finishing high school and leaving Hungary, I spent two years in a village, in an exile. My family was exiled mm. because they were classified as politically unreliable or class enemies on account of my maternal grandfather, who was a former capitalist. So I spent two years in this village, mostly with manual labor, and then two years in the army. I was conscripted, and then one more year as a construction, as a laborer on construction in Budapest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so then, then came the revolution. I mean, there was another sort of interlude, six weeks, when I was trying to learn how to become a precision tool maker or mechanic mm-hmm. in a factory rather than just labor on construction. So and then came the revolution, and after it was put down, then I escaped. Mm-hmm. And yes, indeed, all these things quite profoundly affected my worldview and interests and professional interests, and I, I used to say that uh, these, these varied experiences in Hungary really contributed a great deal to my having become a sociologist, although as time when, I mean, I am officially a sociologist, I, all my degrees are in sociology, but uh, actually then I have sort of drifted away from this kind of identity, and I could have been also a political scientist or an intellectual historian. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. basically, uh, the, these experiences were quite quite profound mm-hmm. and had a great deal of influence on my work and mm-hmm. specific publications. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that because you see all those things in this book. It's, it's it's hard to say. I think if someone read this book, I'm not sure they would be 100% sure whether you were a sociologist or a historian or political science. Right. I think that's a good yes, thing. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, suppose so. I suppose that one most obvious impact of these experiences is this comparative framework. I I have been doing basically some variety of comparative sociology. I mean, my first book was a comparative study of Soviet and American society. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, 
I have been making all these comparisons between attitudes towards communist systems on the part of intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mean, I, there has always been a kind of implicit comparison in my mind between Western societies and the type of society where I grew up. And I should also include that uh, these uh, not so pleasant experiences in yes. Hungary included the Jewish persecution in 1944, mm-hmm. when my family and myself, we had a relatively narrow escape. We were mm-hmm. hiding with fake papers and mm-hmm. so forth. So, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of conflict. Politic- I have witnessed a lot of political conflict growing up in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Which, which then, which then, of course, totally, then, then my life totally changed after I left Hungary and I became an academic mm-hmm. and leading a peaceful existence in, first in England and most of the time in the United States where I spent most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the Pioneer Valley, right here where we are. <laughs> right. Well, I in Northampton, yeah. I came to the United States in 59 and First, I went to graduate school for one year at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and then I transferred to Princeton and uh, got my PhD in '63. And then I had a non-tenured teaching job at Harvard between '63 and '68. And then I came to the University of Massachusetts mm-hmm. in Amherst, mm-hmm. where I spent the rest of my teaching career until the year 2000, when I retired from teaching. Mm-hmm. Can, can I ask you another sort of biographical intellectual history question? And it was well, it's, it's basically this, and, and that is, uh, I was thinking about the late 60s. Were you surprised by the popularity of what we might call, I, I don't know whether to call it leftism or socialism in the places where you were studying well, and teaching? Well, I have to admit that this, this, begin, this began when I was an undergraduate at the London School of Economics. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was also a fair amount of leftism there. And uh, I, I was sort of irritated by it. And, and I... My I, my basic attitude was that these people or many of them had absolutely no idea what political systems which claimed to be leftist turned out to be. You know, mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe, the one-party states, supposedly socialist. Uh, so I mean, yes, I, I had a problem with a, with Western leftism. Except, of course, there have also been plenty of Western leftists, both in Western Europe and the United States, who actually knew about the Soviet-dominated countries, or later in the of the third world countries of similar persuasion, you know, the more revolutionary systems like Cuba or China in the beginning under Mao, mm-hmm. and were at the same time anti-communist. There have also been such leftists, mm-hmm. but I would say that the majority of the leftists I encountered either were totally ignorant and uninterested in existing. You know, existing socialist states, or which called themselves socialists, or called themselves Marxist-Leninists, or were sympathetic towards them. So uh, that has been a, a kind of an inspiration in my work, I have to admit, to try to tell something to Western readers about the nature of these political systems. Mm-hmm. And you may, may very well think that, yeah, of, of course, these political systems didn't live up to their Marxist heritage or Marxist inspiration. Yes, sure, you can say that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, I, my view was always that, you know, there are some people who said that, well, the Soviet Union had absolutely nothing to do with Marxism. And other people would say that, yes, it was completely, uh, we, we can blame Marx for this type of political system like the Soviet Union or China under Mao. I would say that this system had something to do with Marxism, mm-hmm. and we can dispute how much. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. obviously, there was some connection. Mm-hmm. But no, you can't. You cannot blame Marx for the gulag, <laughs> no. the collectivization of agriculture in Soviet society, or the Cultural Revolution in China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I see just what you mean. So, could you tell us why you wrote? This most recent book, and let me say the title again, from Benito Mussolini to Hugo Chavez, Intellectuals and a Century of Political Hero Worship. Yeah, well, well there are two, two explanations. One is sort of the more immediate explanation was that I was asked a few years ago to contribute to a volume which was to be edited by Vladimir Tismanianu, a political scientist uh, at the University of Maryland, about intellectuals, about totalitarianism, something about totalitarianism, or maybe intellectuals. No, just about totalitarianism. And uh, and I guess I, I am not sure what the subtitle was going to be. But anyway, 
he asked me to contribute to this volume. So I proposed that I will write something. I guess it was about intellectuals or totalitarianism. And I proposed that I will write something about intellectuals and uh, people who were the major inspiration or uh, leaders of various totalitarian countries. Inter and, I mean, political hero worship and intellectuals. So that was the most immediate inspiration to write something for this volume. And then as time went by, and I actually completed this. It's a chapter. It was a chapter. I don't know how 50, maybe 50 typewritten pages or manuscript pages. And then I thought, well, maybe this topic could be expanded into a book. And now comes a broader explanation that I have this long-standing interest in communist systems and other, not just communist systems, but also various repressive societies and also about uh, this long-standing interest in the perception of these societies by Western intellectuals. And that book, which was mentioned earlier by Marshall, Political Pilgrims, where that had to do with the perception of communist systems by intellectuals or a portion of intellectuals. This is a debatable topic, you know, what proportion of Western intellectuals sympathize with these systems. And uh, it's very difficult to quantify because there are no surveys, opinion surveys directed at intellectuals as such. So I have this long-standing interest in how intellectuals related to these political systems, or, in, or more generally, interest in intellectuals and politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. then, of course, uh, I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to do something different than in political pilgrims, and political pilgrims was concerned with the intellectual's attitude towards communist systems mm -hmm. or Soviet-type communist system, not communist, you know, in the sense of uh, the ideal society which, which was yet to be created. So uh, then I thought that it would be interesting to look at the attitude of intellectuals toward other unsavory political systems, such as fascist Italy or Nazi Germany, and then a few others from more recent times, like North Korea or Syria or Iraq under Saddam Hussein mm -hmm. or uh, Panama under Torrio. So a few other, and Nicaragua. No, Nicaragua was on the left. And Chavez, uh, well, that was sort of on the left, too. So anyway, I wanted to have a broader look of the intellectuals' political attitudes towards, you could say, these all have been to different to various degrees, authoritarian or repressive societies. <clears throat> and then the second interest was to focus on the leaders. And I have also always been interested in and you, you might say morbidly fascinated by <laughs> so-called cult of personality, mm -hmm. which, which was, of course, the term originated with Khrushchev, and it was basically an understatement applied to the rule of Stalin. He called it the period of the cult of personality, where, of course, there was much more to this than just a cult of personality. Anyway, the cults were, were to a large degree created by the machinery of propaganda, but some of these leaders I wrote about, such as Mussolini and Hitler and Castro, were genuinely popular, at least earlier in their careers. And they were charismatic and very mm -hmm. good speakers, and they made a huge emotional impact on their audiences. Mm -hmm. So, And then I, then I have also been interested, it is a kind of a side interest or subsidiary interest, in the spiritual, what, what might be called the spiritual problems of modernity. And that is, of course, the difficulty people have in in living in highly secularized societies uh, where, where communities have been weakened and there is a great deal of social isolation and mm -hmm. uh, you know, insufficient social solidarity or com sense of community. And of course, uh, the lack of serious religious commitments. I don't think that People say that the United States is a deeply religious country, but in some ways it is. But I think I don't think that, and I think this was something I, I felt from the beginning when I came to this country almost 60 years ago, that this American religiosity is is, is more a social than a truly spiritual phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So I have been interested in these related topics, and then and another topic I mentioned this in the preface of the book that 
I have always been interested in the varieties of the gap or the contrast between illusion and reality or appearance and reality or theory and practice or deception and self-deception, all these things. And, and more institutionally speaking, I have been interested in political propaganda or commercial advertising. So mm-hmm. all these things hang together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, they do, and they, they all are... And, and, uh, and I could incorporate it into this book, mm-hmm. into this recent book. Well, you see all these strands in this book. So let, let's begin with the material itself. And one of the parts that I, I most enjoyed about the book was uh, your uh, trying to grapple with how to define what an intellectual is in the Western context. Could you talk a little bit about that? What is an intellectual in the Western context? And am I well, one? I mean, <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, you see, I, I, of course, when I first wrote about intellectuals, was in the political pilgrim book, mm-hmm. and then, 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 and in that book, I surveyed a good, good chunk of the literature on who intellectuals are, and how, how you can define them, and. Uh, I concluded, uh, in light of the political behavior or political beliefs of intellectuals, I came to the conclusion that many of the conventional definitions or beliefs about intellectuals are incorrect. That, for example, that intellectuals are invariably critical, where they are not, you know, and uh, intellectuals can also be true believers. So uh, I, I guess, basically, I was thinking about intellectuals not not trying to define them occupationally, so most of them these days are academics, you know, mm-hmm. are in, in departments of uh, humanities and social sciences. But basically, I would say that two 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 criteria or attributes I think are key to defining intellectuals: an interest in ideas, but that sounds pretty general. But they are not specialists. Yeah, you know, a, a botanist or an entomologist or astronomer are not as an intellectual only because he or she is highly educated. So they are generalists in the general interest in ideas and uh, also a social critical propensity. Mm-hmm. I think these are the two most important things. And uh, or perhaps also you might add an interest in this question of the difference between appearance and reality. Mm-hmm. I think, and that that is very closely linked to the social critical propensity, because you know most social critical writings of intellectuals sooner or later will conclude in exposing some discrepancy between uh, ideas and realities. You know, like the United States, you know, the, the paying lip service to equality as in the Constitution, and then of course the realities of, of inequality, and of course this this is endless. The, discrepancies between theories and practices or, or, or values people ascribe to and their actual behavior. Mm-hmm. So I would say these are then the major attributes of intellectuals, interest in ideas, and uh, oh, I would also say a certain kind of idealism, high expectations. I think intellectuals have high expectations as to the kind of society they would like to live in, and of course that's what makes them Critical. That's what makes them social critics. Mm-hmm. And uh, nevertheless, of course, as I said in the, in the concluding chapter of this latest book, uh, you know, intellectuals are very different, and there, were, there, there have been tons of intellectuals who, who have never been enamored with uh, the Soviet Union or Castro's Cuba or Mao's China and so forth. So uh, intellectuals vary a great deal. Although I would say that. Most of the notable or prominent intellectuals have been or are critical of their own society. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing about Western intellectuals that they don't like capitalism. Yes, that seems to be clear. So but, well, very one of the things I liked about your definition was that it was, in a certain sense, um, what shall we say, uh, tendency or ideologically neutral. So it's as easy to be an intellectual, I don't know if it's as easy, but there are intellectuals on the right as well as the left. I, the thing I, I fear is is that many, for many Americans, the notion of intellectual is permanently cemented with the idea of being a leftist. Yes. But that isn't yes. true historically at all. Yes, but, but of course many in, in our times, only in the much of the 20th century, many intellectuals were on the left, or many prominent intellectuals were on the left, and there were, of course, many others who were critical of them. 
Mm-hmm. So, but I, it's difficult to quantify. Yeah. Well, one of the people that you, you bring up in the book, and I, I think is a great example, is Josef Goebbels, who was, uh, I guess we would yeah. say, on the right way. I don't, you know, again, what's Nazism? I don't know. But he was an intellectual. Yes. By almost any measure. Yeah. He was interested in ideas. He was well educated. And of course, there is this other notion which he shared with Lenin that ideas are weapons or can mm-hmm. be weapons mm-hmm. or can mm-hmm. be weaponized, as they say these days that I, many things are weaponized in, in American political discourse too. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, but uh, this is somehow many intellectuals don't like to think of Goebbels as an intellectual <laughs> yeah, because of this kind of, because of his political uh, role and, yes, and right. commitment. Yeah, yeah, but know. yes, in terms of many definitions, he was an intellectual. Sure, sure. And um, could you tell us a little bit, and this is sort of to jump ahead, we haven't gone through the material itself, that is the actual empirical examples, but is there something, what is it about intellectuals that are uh, drawn to at least create or think of political leaders on whichever side of the aisle as heroes? Is there some um, affinity well, between... the political, and, yes, yes, I think that, that I can answer this, and I, I think I did some, this was to some extent in the book, that intellectuals admired the political leaders who uh, met the criteria of the philosopher king. Mm-hmm. That is to say, who had power and interest in ideas and supposedly tried to apply their ideas and ideas to shaping society and even transforming for the better human beings and human nature. So these are that I think intellectuals, or many intellectuals, have this... Uh, great apprehension about not being active or actors, that they, it's all talk and no action. I think this is a kind of apprehension or fear which haunts many intellectuals, that they are just talkers. And what they are doing doesn't really make much difference. And then you get these people who, you know, who seem to have made a huge amount of difference and initially it looked like for the better. And they, these major leaders are discussed in the book they all thought of themselves as, uh, you know, whether or not they use the right term, philosopher kings and, and great theorists or ideologues. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important for their sense of identity. You know, Hitler began his life writing his Mein Kampf when mm-hmm. he was already, when he was in prison. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so all, all of these people are there to it in this book. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. a great deal of writing. Yeah, they no, they did, that, yeah. But what they wrote was very important and they... And and some of them, to different degrees, you know, they also thought of this, themselves as critics of art and would advise writers. This was more true of the communist, uh, <laughs> on the communist side of the political spectrum, you know, advising the artists or, or repressing the, them from expressing themselves in mm-hmm. incorrect ways, I think. But Hitler also, early in his career, I remember, he went to this exhibit in, in Munich, Germany, where they had an exhibit on something like decadent art or mm-hmm. decrepit art or something like this, where they brought together paintings which Hitler considered deplorable mm-hmm. from the point of view of you know, a Nazi outlook on the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, again, I think that's, that's an important point, this relationship between ideas and beliefs and behavior. I think that's what attracts intellectuals. And, of course, being a revolutionary, you know, like Castro, was extremely attractive. He was a real doer. And besides, you know, he and like Stalin and the rest of them, they seemed to be experts on everything. Mm-hmm. Or they could advise intellectuals about everything. And mm-hmm. uh, probably Mao and Stalin were the most extreme cases of mm-hmm. this. We can Renaissance man. That's another way you could define them. Renaissance mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Well, Well, let's begin at the beginning of your book. And I, I think that for many... Uh, well, perhaps not our listeners because they're extraordinarily well-read and well-educated, but for many Americans, at least, the idea that uh, Mussolini and the early fascists, I guess including Hitler, had uh, what were essentially cheerleaders and fans in the West would be astounding. But there there were such people, and you have found yeah, them. There you, were many, yes. Yes, could you talk about fact, them? Yes, I talked about them, and... Uh, Actually, I didn't know this before uh, until I did my research. I didn't know that, that 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 Mussolini and Hitler also had considerable support from intellectuals. Mind you, I think a lot of this support 
came from the intellectuals in their own countries yes. a great deal. And also another important qualification that this admiration of Hitler and Mussolini was not very durable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whereas the admiration of the intellectuals of the communist leaders like Stalin and Mao and Castro, that has been much more durable. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and it, and it persists in some ways. It mm-hmm. still persists, certainly Castro. Um, so, uh, could you introduce us to a few of the people that intellectuals that were uh, supporters? I guess I would say of Mussolini and Hitler. Well, I didn't actually interview many people. I remember one name, one person comes into mind. Somebody in Hungary, and actually that person I interviewed for another project when I wrote earlier a book about the collapse of the Soviet system, mm-hmm. and and by and also in connection with that, the collapse of the other systems which the Soviet Union kept alive, so to speak, you know, the Eastern European countries like mm-hmm. Hungary and the rest of them. And then I interviewed a person in Hungary who was a former uh, high-ranking Hungarian KGB official, and his father... Farkas, maybe you heard this. Mm-hmm. He Farkas was the Minister of Defense, and his son Vladimir Farkas, as I said, he worked for the Hungarian KGB, and I had numerous conversations with him. Well, he sort of, he repented, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book which is only published in Hungarian, you know, which which describes his, uh, his uh, disillusionment with the system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so uh, mm-hmm. you are asking about interviews. Okay. Well, no, I meant what I meant was it. it uh, um, well, you know, he, I can think of an, an American, one of the leaders of the American Communist Party, and his name I ask, oh, you know, of the old old American Communist Party, like Gus Hall, Aptaker, Aptaker, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mm-hmm. I I interviewed him. I had a long conversation with him. I I think that was for a book I wrote about disillusionment with communism, the mm-hmm. end of commitment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because he, he sort of distanced himself to some degree from Soviet communism late in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no. it's not someone else. Yeah, what, what, I, what I tried to uh, say was, can you tell us about some of the people who we might have heard of or maybe hadn't heard of who were intellectual supporters of Mussolini and Hitler? Well, I think the m- most famous uh, intellectual supporter of Hitler was Heidegger. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I am not a student of Heidegger, and I, I, I have read a fair amount of him in secondary sources, and I refer to them in this book. Well, Heidegger, uh, I think Heidegger's uh, attraction to Nazism was very explicitly connected to his revulsion of modernity. Mm-hmm. He, he said so. I mean, this is actually interesting because... Uh, Many intellectuals didn't make this quite clear that they were attracted to these communist systems, whether it was communist or, communist or Nazi or fascist, because they thought that these systems somehow uh, succeeded in the, in you know and ending alienation and overcoming the difficulties modernity created in the lives of people. And uh, perhaps this was this has some truth to it in the beginning, as far as Nazi Germany and fascist Italy were concerned that, you know, they created this short-lived sense of community. Mm-hmm. And uh, that appealed to intellectuals, certainly as Heidegger was one of these people. He, another interesting thing about Heidegger, that he explicitly praised the system which the Nazis introduced, you know, to, to, between work, that was also true of communist systems, that they would uh, involve intellectuals or future intellectuals, college students, in manual labor. Mm-hmm. And uh, Heidegger thought that was, that was one of the positive features of Nazi Germany, that you know, university students would participate in their holidays or vacations in manual labor, and of course they have been doing this in communist systems too, mm-hmm. especially in Cuba and China, less so in the Soviet Union. And there was some of this in Hungary when I was growing up. You know, I remember we, we went to do some projects, but it was not very prolonged or important. But I mean, that's an interesting, interesting commonality among these uh, leaders that they believed that somehow manual labor had a redeeming aspect. Mm-hmm. That both the Nazis and communist leaders had this belief. Now, how, how seriously they took it, I really don't know. But they certainly involved a large 
part of the population, you know, in Cuba, people, office workers going to cut sugar cane. And of course, in China, during the Cultural Revolution, they have moved millions of people uh, who were, who were white collar workers into the countryside and they were supposedly learned from the peasants through manual labor. Mm-hmm. So again, I suppose you could say this is a kind of implicit rejection of modernity, mm-hmm. that manual labor is, is a good thing and, and it clears your mind somehow. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me that this intellectual rejection of modernity, as you put it, is a, a kind of fundamental and recurrent theme in hero worship, as you it, recall it. It is. Um, yeah. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about it? Because, I mean, I think it yeah. also, you know, it does really, it, it does. Well, one of the things that comes out in the book is the people that do uh, glom on to these or go in support of these uh, p- political leaders, they, they all have very strong critiques of their own societies. And, and to the extent Many of them are bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. bizarre, if you ask me, but right. they, they are bizarre. I, I yeah. yeah, I mean, of course, this also helps to explain the Trump phenomenon. Yeah, go ahead. And I, I said something about it in the preface to the book. Well, I think this is, this is as I, as I, again, I, I, this is a kind of quasi-religious impulse, you know. It's, it's a way to, to, to overcome meaninglessness and, and weak or, or declining or non-existent social solidarity. Mm-hmm. I think I think it is a kind of meaning-seeking impulse, uh, and these these people who were admired, they were sort of quasi-divine entities. Mm-hmm. And uh, now again, here one may have to di- distinguish perhaps between the attitudes of intellectuals and regular people. I remember, you know, reading that in China, uh, the, the workers and the peasants, before starting to work daily, would would stand in front of pictures, paintings or pictures of Mao as if they were praying to him mm-hmm. and tell him what they were going to do during the day or what they have accomplished during the day, this kind of thing. Very, very almost overtly religious attitudes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, whether or not, uh, to what extent this extends to intellectual, but they, they wouldn't go to such extremes. But I think intellectuals... Uh, had high hopes about these leaders that they will make the society they live in more more meaningful and mm-hmm. uh, especially I think you, another point I should have made perhaps earlier that a lot of inter- Western intellectuals or maybe intellectuals everywhere have some identity problems because intellectuals you know socially speaking is a kind of unclear category are they middle class working class upper class where they can be different things in addition mm-hmm. to being intellectuals. So many intellectuals felt that in, in communist systems or in Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, intellectuals had a well-defined, desirable, beneficial social role. Mm-hmm. No more identity problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that obviously was very appealing. Well, then let's move on a little bit past uh, fascists and go on to uh, what I think is much richer territory for hero worship among intellectuals. West, and that is of uh, of Stalin and um, the and Soviet satellites generally. Can you talk a little bit about the way in which Western intellectuals came to worship Stalin? I guess. Well, and, yeah. the, I mean, this worship had, had the basic uh, source or foundation of this worship was that the Soviet system or or the Chinese system or Cuba under Castro, the systems themselves were completely identified with the leader. So it is difficult to think of the systems without the leaders, and the leaders struck, you know, it's difficult to say what came first. Well, obviously what came first was rejection of their own society. And then the next thing was, well, where is some society which doesn't have all the blemishes and warts and flaws or injustices of our own society? And then, um, you know, this, this was obviously determined by historical events because... Uh, the Soviet Union was popular at the time when Western societies in the late 20s and early 30s had these serious economic problems, and the Soviet Union didn't seem to have any of those problems, in addition to these other spiritual benefits. Mm-hmm. Now, in the, in the 60s, uh, by the 60s, Western intellectuals learned something about the Soviet system that was disillusioning, since even one of the 
top leader, Khrushchev, uh, denounced Stalin, and then uh, there was this, uh, that was difficult to dismiss the kind of things Khrushchev said about the system under Stalin. So then, 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 then you have people like Castro and Mao, who were these kind of towering leaders. Again, you know, they, they were also thinkers and philosophers. So, uh, no, what was the original question again? Why they admired the leaders? Well, yeah. Because it seemed, it seemed to the intellectuals that these leaders were so brilliant thinkers and doers that they created this uh, superior social system which had no unemployment and uh, and especially permeated by a sense of solidarity and community mm-hmm. and no, no more social isolation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the different degrees of social equality. I mean, in China, obviously, it was easier to think that there was greater social inequality than the Soviet Union, and many intellectuals even perceived the Cultural Revolution as a kind of a new, a major step to to equalize society. And and also to to sort of there was this other idea which many that goes back to Marx of course that somehow you know human beings become more whole if the division of labor is reduced or abolished. Mm-hmm. It was an idea Marx had you know a very modern notion about wholeness. Well, you know how could how could you have modern society without division of labor? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you could say that was another critique of modern society which we encounter many times in this country too, you know. It, it's a very paradoxical thing because people want expert advice on everything. <laughs> at the same time, you know, experts are also held in some, are, are viewed with skepticism. Mm-hmm. When people want some, some fundamental truth. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, you see, one of the most important things, I think, in, in, in this book I mentioned that what, what for example, impressed Sartre about uh, Che Guevara, he said he was the, the most whole human being. And the same, similar things were said about Che Guevara by I.F. Stone. Mm-hmm. You know, what again, what's remarkable that these two people who thought of themselves as hard-nosed social critics, and, and then, these, then they were genuflecting uh, in front of these kinds of uh, repressive political figures. I mean, it's remarkable how intellectuals can can uh, distance themselves from their own social critical impulses mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. give it to the religious impulses mm-hmm. or quasi-religious impulses. Well, well, so, I, I mean, it, you know, that, and, and also, as I said, the Renaissance man image, you know, with Mao, who would, you know, remember he was a great swimmer, supposedly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, Hitler wasn't so much involved with physical activities. Yeah. Castro was again. He had the physical aspect. Yeah. He was tall and energetic and so on. Mm-hmm. So well, they, they varied a great deal. One of the things and, that I, I found really surprising in the book that I didn't know—I knew quite a bit about the Soviet context because I had been trained as a Russian historian—but um, I didn't realize that the kind of hero worship of uh, Mao was so prominent in the West even after 1953. Yes. Uh, So could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, because you see, here is another aspect of the why intellectuals shifted from the admiration of the Soviet system to the admiration of China under Mao and Cuba under Castro and North Vietnam to a lesser extent, Mm -hmm. or Nicaragua to some extent too. Well, because you see, it seemed to these intellectuals that the Soviet system, there was the famous convergence theory that insofar as intellectuals <laughs> became more critical of the Soviet system, it was because it was also a modern industrial society like the United States. Yeah. But you see, China... No, I, I, I was going to say, I remember this convergence very well, and, and I was this is when I sort of first began my training, and I remember reading things by, I think it was Eric Hobsbawm was one of them, but especially, I think maybe Perry Anderson was another, and... Yes. I don't remember all of them who were... Uh, yeah. Now that you mentioned Hobsbawm, I cannot resist to, to mention a, a statement I quoted in the beginning, which, which is a reflection, a very good reflection of the attitude of intellectuals we are, we are probing here. And that was that... Uh, and then we, then we go back to why Castro and Mao were especially popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was sometimes in the 90s that... Uh, 
Hobson was interviewed, and the interviewer asked him, in Britain, of course, that if he had known in the 1930s about the purges and the show trials in the Soviet Union, which were going on, if he had known in the 90s, would he still have supported the Soviet system? And and after some hesitation, Hobsbawm said, yes, he would have done so because the Soviet system was the only one, I, I am not paraphrasing, I don't remember mm-hmm. the exact words, which which offered some hope mm-hmm. about the future. Yeah, right. See, right. the good intentions, this is something I emphasized in this book, that people admired this dictators because what they perceived as the good intentions they had about improving their societies and human nature. Now, I think that what people liked about China and Cuba, that they were also more traditional societies and more underdeveloped societies. Mm -hmm. And that some of these uh, traditional attitudes, uh, even North Korea, there there is one, I know of one of this kind of a very, very favorable book about North Korea by this historian from Chicago, Cummings, I think his name. Mm-hmm. Again, he, he liked the fact that, you know, old ladies were sweeping the street. <laughs> you know, just, as, just as in traditional society. How wonderful that old people have a function. I remember, I remember it's funny you mentioned that because I remember the first time I saw that in, in the Soviet Union. And I, I pretty yeah. much couldn't believe it. And I was like, why is grandma sweeping the street? Right. And, you know, also, I remember many of the people who went to the Soviet Union in the 30s and went to the villages. And uh, now, now you see names, names are fading. Um, there were several people who were sort of serial pilgrims that first went to the Soviet system, then they became disillusioned with it, then they went to China or Cuba. Uh-huh. And they were sort of looking for the same thing, authenticity. Yes, I think that's another right. important idea yeah. because traditional societies are more authentic. Uh-huh. Modern societies are not. That's, that's sort of the basic idea. Yeah. And then there is some truth to it. Whatever we mean exactly by authenticity, well, that's another yeah. big issue. But what people liked about you know China and Cuba is all this manual labor, you know, and, <laughs> and things were not yet mass produced, and, and that there was a sense of community in the villages. Mm-hmm. You know, and people knew each other. Yeah. Some of these communist systems somehow were perceived or misperceived as having the attributes of traditional society. And to some degree, they did have it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. there was some truth to that. Yeah. And they have this enormous population of peasants, both the Soviet Union and China. Uh-huh. And of course, the, not that the regimes themselves like the peasants, because of course, Contempt of the peasants goes back to Marx, yeah, and, yeah. and the peasants were mistreated as a as a group sure. in, in both the Soviet Union and China. Perhaps more hard to say in which country more so. Probably maybe the Soviet Union. Yeah, but I, I have to say that conversion theory has to be one of the most bizarre episodes in all of intellectual history. I remember reading an article. I think it was by E. P. Thompson, and yeah. a historian yeah, who I quite admired. And he said, yeah, and right. I had just got back from the Soviet Union, and he said the most bizarre things about it. Right. And Galbraith. Galbraith was a great believer yeah. in convergence theory, too. Yeah. I, well, I think what was good about what appealed to the intellectuals about this convergence theory, that that gave them an opportunity to reject sort of modernity, yeah. both versions, both mm-hmm. the capitalist and the communist versions of modernity, and also that allowed them to be critics of both types of societies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. And, and to and see hope in, in the more now, optimistic yeah. version. In a more optimistic version, it allowed them to to think that the Soviet system will become more humane and democratic as it becomes more modern and more mm-hmm. industrial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one of, is, I was going to say, one of the things that I was very much surprised to read in your book, I did not know this at all. When I went to graduate school, everybody read a lot of Michel Foucault. Um, the, the, uh, we were forced to do it, I have to confess. And uh, I, I never really understood why, but uh, in any event, the, you talk to, to, at some length about uh, Michel Foucault's adoration of revolutionary Iran. Could you talk right. a little bit about that? Because I don't think this episode well, is widely he, known. He introduced, he introduced this this term, which I should have used more, that what he liked in Iran was spiritual politics. Mm-hmm. You see, this very neatly captures this ideal he was also after, you know, this kind of society was somehow permeated by religious feelings, again, getting away from modernity. 
and and he was also of course profoundly ignorant of the nature of the society, just like the rest of them. But he was a pilgrim. He visited. Absolutely. And saw. But, you know, boy, that this, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is an amazing thing. You can't go to places that learn nothing about them. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> and especially if you have a very efficient uh, uh, conducted tourism and, and you have your, uh, your predisposition, you know, to find good things. But sometimes it doesn't work. You know, André Gide was disillusioned despite yeah. the conducted tour. And, and a few other people were too. But... Uh, most people, given predisposition and being screened away from many of the unappealing aspects of the society during their visits, well, sure, you, you come away with very positive impressions. Yeah, but Foucault, who was gay, and openly so, at least I who, think who he was, was Foucault, who? And Foucault, yes. he goes to Iran where there are no homosexuals, yes. <laughs> right? And well, he get, probably didn't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, in the same way, you know, people who went to China, they didn't know that they, they, right. they were shooting homosexuals. Yes, right. I, I was like, wow, that is really. So, I did not know that at all about Foucault's life. I did not know that. But you see, these are again talking about moral equivalence. I was thinking of another quote. I, I quoted this. I don't know in which book that some American feminist said that. Well, why are why are Americans or, or some American pundits critical of the women in the Muslim societies wearing the burqa? Mm -hmm. In America, they are forced to wear bras. <laughs> See, it is the moral equivalent, bras yeah. versus burqa. Uh -huh. and, and, or, or, you know, when somebody said that we had the Hollywood purges and the Russians had yes, their own purges. It's amazing. It's just yeah. amazing. You know, the point being that People believe what they want to believe. Sure, sure. And, and this is the amazing thing. And again, this is this is demonstrated by the Trump phenomenon. Yeah. A lot of people believe that he is telling like it is. Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that. I would be remiss not to uh, to ask you about your analysis of the Trump phenomenon. Could you please explain that to us? Well, first of all, I, I have to say, as I have wrote this somewhere, that. It almost makes me anti-American. <laughs> I hope not, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, I, I just think it's it disgraceful. Yeah, yes, you can explain it. Yes, you can explain it. Just, just as you can explain why, you know, people admired Hitler for a while, although Trump is not a Hitler or a Mussolini. A Mussolini is a bit closer. But, I mean, it's basically a case of wishful thinking, and and we have here somebody who succeeded at identifying himself as a champion of the underdog, mm -hmm. you know, and it's a remarkable feat because, of course, he's he's a billionaire, and and uh, and and uh, and, and uh, you could say that he this you could say that he he goes a long way to discredit capitalism <laughs> and, and sort of symbolizes everything that's wrong with capitalism, and yet. Uh, he, he made this favorable impression on millions of people. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it's, and I, I think it says, as I, I have a little piece I wrote about Trump for the an online publication of the American Interest, which which I gave it the title that Trump, human nature, and the craving for respect. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, this is difficult to prove or document, but I think that people who support or attracted to Trump have been not so much because they lost their job, but because their Trump somehow makes them feel better about themselves mm. and their social status. Mm -hmm. And uh, and because because you know this is this is the latest you could say this is the latest victim category, the white males. Mm -hmm. And somehow white and not not so well educated males mm -hmm. who who can can feel this kind of righteous victim. We had this competition in American society for some time for the position of the righteous victim, and mm -hmm. this, this is the latest entry mm -hmm. in the competition. And mm -hmm. I think Trump has uh, very cleverly exploited these these positions mm -hmm. that people want to think mm -hmm. of themselves as uh, it doesn't occupy the moral high ground as as the righteous victim. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. I was going to say, just to play devil's advocate for a second, he didn't get very much support among intellectuals. I can, I can no, hardly that think of any. Not. Yeah. That's, no, this is, that's absolutely true, and I, I made that point in, yeah, in the two pieces I wrote about him. Mm -hmm. No, he didn't have much support, although now, now there, I mean, there have been some, some small groups, but not, not as 
it's not a widespread phenomenon, no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, so I mean, he he appears to the most aggrieved segments of the population, and uh, it's it's really it's really an amazing phenomenon. And uh, I mean that, that people, for example, believe that he's going to get their jobs back, mm-hmm. and uh, I suppose they will keep thinking even when this doesn't happen. They will maybe find some other political entity to blame for the jobs not coming back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I mean, again, I I consider this as a kind of amazing aspect of human irrationality and and, uh, and the the wish to believe. And uh, Mm -hmm. he met this requirement, at least in the short run. Mm -hmm. I don't know what will happen when people, if people lose, the people who voted for him start losing their medical benefits. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Will it be possible to blame it on the Democrats or Obama or I don't know whom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, maybe there's a limit to which human beings can delude themselves. I'm sure, well, I hope there is. <laughs> I do wonder, though, that what role sort of, you mentioned this, but uh, resentment plays in uh, whatever portion of the electorate appreciates um um, Donald Trump, because I, I think that there is a strong element of resentment. I, I think a lot of people voted against not just Hillary right. Clinton, but what Hillary Clinton right. stood for. Actually, uh, I, I met some people, some well-educated people who said they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of Because it, do, it does make the system look somewhat rigged when the uh, wife of the king becomes queen. Yes. You see, that, that doesn't and of look right. She, I, I did vote for her, but I, I never particularly felt attracted to her, and I always felt that she had a kind of she should, she had an inauthentic streak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and similarly, you know what happened. I, I would just take us all back to the the moment at which there, there was going to be a third Bush in the White House. That's Jeb Bush, who was probably the most qualified of all of them. And right. He lost in the first moment. Right. <laughs> so people it's were amazing. not going to have any dynasties on either side. Yeah, that was part of it, yeah. Yeah, they were not interested at all in what I guess we might call the East Coast or West Coast establishment. Right. And, and, and evidence, you know, what's also interesting that Trump, because he, he is quite inarticulate, uh-huh. but I mean, this inarticulateness coming apparently came across for many in his audiences as authenticity, you know, inarticulateness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. His his way of speaking is not in, he does not speak in political ease um, as uh, as 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 other people do. He he is un, yeah. he he appears to be unguarded in his speech. Whether he is or not, I don't know. But right. he yeah. he does appear to shoot from the hip. He yeah. says things that I mean, I remember right. very well when when he the very first moment when I realized that there was something about him that might survive was he made a crap, essentially a joke about John McCain and America's not really big on heroes, but if there is one, it's him. <laughs> and and, right. and oh, Trump yeah. made a joke about him and nothing happened. Yeah, it was terrible. It was a terrible thing to say, but, uh, but nothing happened. Nothing. Right. <laughs> I had to say, well, it really took me aback. Maybe you could also say that he captures some kind of, free-floating, aggressive impulses. It could be, yeah. No, that's right. You know, that really could be. certainly very aggressive and authoritarian. He's not, about, he's not about decorum. So so let me ask you this. What is the, um, what is the future hold for intellectual hero worship? Are there any heroes on the horizon? Hugo Chavez is gone. Uh, is there yes, anybody? I think he was the last major figure. Uh-huh. I mean, I, 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 I always feel completely paralyzed about predicting anything. Sure, of course. And I mean, I didn't think the Soviet system will collapse, for example. No, I didn't either. Uh, so I don't know if I... There is nothing obvious on the horizon, certainly, but the fact that Trump became a kind of an intellectual, a hero worship, although a hero for not for intellectuals, but perhaps more for ordinary people, that suggests that, of course, that the phenomenon has, has a great potential to... Mm-hmm. To reappear or repeat itself, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh, it it would be very difficult to think, you know, where the next such figure would come from. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but, to be fair, I mean, many of the people that intellectuals have admired very much have turned out to be very good people, 
and and so they're not always wrong. Um, right, right, <laughs> right, right. That's very true. Yeah, I'm thinking about like, for example, many of my friends really like the current Trudeau, that is the Prime Minister of Canada. I don't. They like Canada too, but um, you mean the current president? The yes, the current president. Yeah, I can't remember his first name for whatever reason. I'm, yeah, uh, uh, you so, know, his father was a bit of a political pilgrim too. Yes, I I did know that. Yes, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, so he's a nice, nice young man. He so seems he like seems. it. Yeah. And a lot of people yeah. admire him very much, and they, right. they admire Angela Merkel. And I don't know right. that I don't know that Vladimir Putin has any great admirers in the West. But well, uh, I, I have a little bit about him in the book. There were a, there are a handful of American intellectuals who thought well of him. Uh huh. Well, towards the end of the book, I have a little yeah, section on Putin. Tough to make, but you know, it's it's a uh, that that's not really our game to predict. <laughs> no. So I wish I wish we we had some powerful. There are theories at our disposal. Yeah, no, I don't. But I, I mean, I would say that certainly the, that there is no reason to believe that this phenomenon will not repeat itself. I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, just in the name of uh, sort of empirical humility, I, I think that we can say that we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think that. I mean, and it meets it meets a genuine human. Yeah, need. it does. It absolutely does. So, There's no so, question about just it. Just like just like religion meets a human need. So. Yeah. No. It absolutely it, it absolutely does. I mean, you know, I I I can I remember sometimes in my own life when I got a little bit too enthused about something, and you know, even when I was presented with contrary uh, evidence, I wasn't willing to put it away. So this this does. I, I, this this brings to my mind one more uh, point, which Hobsbawm made in his autobiography. I don't know if I quoted this in this latest book or not. I think I quoted it somewhere when he said that one of the most wonderful things in life and in his life was to participate in a demonstration. Yes. In a yes, political sure. demonstration, uh-huh. in, in a good cause. That's good. Yeah. I don't remember how mm-hmm. he put it. And I remember actually, now here is another parallel, that the American spy, Noel, Noel what's his last name? I don't know. You know, the guy who was involved in. He ended his life in Hungary. Mm-hmm. He had a Quaker background. His first thing was yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But again, he also made this point. He went to one demonstration against unemployment uh-huh. and what a great emotional experience yeah. that was. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, you see, and, and he became a Soviet spy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mentioned him in this book because mm-hmm. it's one of the most remarkable cases. He was a total idealist with a Quaker background and a Soviet spy. And then he was arrested in Czechoslovakia and involved in a short trial in Hungary mm-hmm. as a kind of background. He never brought to the court, but they used him to to, uh, uh, to, to discredit some other people. Mm-hmm. You know. It was a complete travesty. <laughs> and then he was rehabilitated and decided to stay in Hungary mm-hmm. as a communist. Yeah. Oh. And that's an amazing story. That's, that's in the book discussed at some uh, at some length. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, we've... Yeah, I was going to say, we've almost out of time here. I don't want to take too much of your time off. We've taken a lot of it. Um, could you ask the, answer the traditional final question that we have on the New Books Network, and that is, what, what are you working on now? Do you have a project? I do have a project, although I am working on it at a very low rate. <laughs> but I think it's a fairly good project. I am interested in comparing personifications of evil or the political enemy in three uh, systems or political movements, the Nazis and the Jews, mm-hmm. the communist systems and, and the class enemy or the capitalist, mm-hmm. and then the radical Islam and the infidel. That's interesting. And yeah. I'm interested in how these three types of person, personification of evil are presented, the uh-huh. specific details uh-huh. Uh-huh. of the types of human being which which are as I said, personifications of evil, and again, it has, of course, some kind of a religious root or renaissance, this uh-huh. belief that, uh, and of course, this has to do with the with the scapegoating impulse that people uh, very much prefer to blame their problems on, on something out there, you know, not themselves, but and some, how. Yeah, some, some evil or injustice, and yeah. uh, well, some often they are right, and sometimes they are not. So anyway, this is what I am trying to work on. Well, I hope you come back on the show when you're done with that book. Yeah, I hope I will long enough to do it. I'm sure you will. So anyway, let me tell everyone we've been talking with Paul Hollander 
about his book From Benito Mussolini to Hugo Chavez, Intellectuals and a Century of Political Hero Worship. It's a great book. I hope you go buy it. Paul, thank you for being on the show. You are very welcome. I enjoy talking to you. Thank you. And let me say to everyone who listened to this podcast, we appreciate your patronage very much, and we will talk to you soon.